Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Welcome to any first-time guests we have today. As you said, I'm Pastor Joey, and uh, we want to say welcome. We are taking our deep dive into the book of Revelation, one of my favorite and all-time books of the Bible. So many cool things here. Uh, But before we get started, they say a picture paints a thousand words. It's no wonder why God speaks to his people through visions and dreams. Painting pictures on the mind, on the heart of things that he wants to communicate. Have you ever just felt like God has spoken to you? I remember the first time that God spoke to me. I was, um, we were in Missouri ministering at another church as worship leaders at the time. And we were provided the opportunity to come up to Michigan to minister at another church. And um, I was praying about that opportunity. And I was like, God, is this, is this what you want us to do? Like, do you want us to, to go to Michigan? And I just remember hearing God saying two words. He said, you're going. But those two words meant way more to my heart than just what I could comprehend in my mind. I knew in that moment there was a calling, there was a purpose, there was something God had for us, that this was his will, that we could believe that this was going to happen, that we could act in faith. There was so much more to what God was saying. And so... um, This is how God works often with visions and dreams as he puts pictures on our heart because it requires you to concentrate and maybe dig a little deeper to what God is is trying to tell you so the meaning can come to the surface. It's kind of like stereograms. Do you guys remember stereograms? We got uh, the, uh, should be a picture on the screen. This is a stereogram. I remember growing up, we used to go to the mall, and they would have these, like, up everywhere. And the trick is to stare at it long enough, and then as your eyes blur and they become cross-eyed and you look goofy staring at the picture, the background will blur and the image will actually leap off like a hologram off the page. Anybody see it yet? It's a shark. If you didn't know, we were looking at a shark. So... And it takes me about an hour for my eyes to adjust to be able to see it. But uh, I just think these things are, are awesome, the way this works. It's kind of a picture of when God gives you an image, he gives you a vision, a picture. It takes time to concentrate, to dig in, to see what he has for you as you stare at the image. As we close out chapter one today of the book of Revelation, we're going to be zeroing in on the vision of Jesus Christ himself. As John is picturing and giving us a vision or a picture of what Jesus looks like as he appeared to John. And some of this will be familiar, but some of it might not be as we look at this revelation, this description. But as we, as we see, as we unpack the scripture, you're going to see another art form, not just a stereogram, but you're going to see a mosaic. A mosaic is a picture that is actually pieced together by a bunch of small parts all put together. If you think of the extravagant tile works in like ancient cultures where it seems like these little tiles, color tiles are all matched together and then it brings about a bigger picture. Sometimes we see this online. There's this trend where you take an artist or you take a celebrity 
and you see a picture of them online. But then when you look closer, you can see that the picture is actually made up of a bunch of smaller pictures of the artist. I've got one here of Jesus on the screen here for you. Similar to this. It's a mosaic. It's a bunch of smaller pictures that come together to actually reveal a greater image, a greater picture. And this is what John is actually giving us in the book of Revelation as we are beginning to unpack this vision of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into Revelation chapter 1 and read this vision, I want to read another passage of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, about what Jesus would look like as the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about his coming. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, this is what Isaiah writes. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form. Somebody say no form. Or majesty. Somebody say majesty. That we should look at him and no beauty. Somebody say beauty. He had no beauty that we should desire. Somebody say desire. He had no beauty that we should desire him. So this is Isaiah's prophecy of what the, the Messiah, about the one who would come and save his people from their sins, would look like when he appeared on the earth. There would be nothing at all about Jesus that would draw you to him. Matter of fact, if you lived in his day and you passed him on the street, unless you knew who he was, you wouldn't know who he was. He was an ordinary individual. Nothing significant. So this is the picture of the coming Messiah, the one who would give his life for the sins of the people, humble. Now, the ancient Israelites, they had two real versions of what they thought the Messiah would be like and two reasons why he would come each way. We're not going to get into that today, but, but basically they had this idea that if the Messiah came and suffered for the people, they called him Messiah ben Joseph after the character Joseph in the book of Genesis, the one who was suffered before coming to reign. And so Messiah ben Joseph was the suffering servant. He was the humble one. He was the one that would come, that would be insignificant and give his life for the people. But then there was the other Messiah, Messiah ben David, the conquering king, the victorious warrior, the majestic, holy, and righteous one, the glorious one. We have these two different pictures uh, communicated in ancient Israel. Now, what's in our minds when we think of Jesus? Every movie, every book, every story, every picture we see, every flannel graph that we saw back in the day in Sunday school, everyone depicted Isaiah's depiction of Jesus, the humble one, the meek, the lowly one, the one who was insignificant in appearance. That's what we have in our mind. Nothing would demand our attention to, to give honor to Jesus in the way he appeared in his first coming. But Messiah ben David, the conquering king, is another story. And John, as he's beginning to write in the book of Revelation, you're going to see a difference in description between Isaiah's description and what John leaves for us here in Revelation chapter 1. And what John is depicting of Jesus in this vision is he's trying to tie and connect together the understanding of what Messiah would be like in fullness. We know that he came as the suffering servant, but now he's tying in what he is like as the conquering king. 
And he, every description we read is a tile in the mosaic to give us an image as it's brought together of what this God of ours is really like. It's to draw us into the fullness of who he is, to tie together the Old and New Testament together to keep us from missing who Jesus really is. So we're going to begin reading in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. The verses will be on the screen, or if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can navigate to the events page, and all of our notes will be there for you in case uh, uh, you fall behind. But uh, beginning in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, here's what John writes. He says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool and like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've prepared for us today. God, I say take us deeper. God, open our hearts and our minds. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that understands, and a heart ready to believe and receive everything you have for us. And I ask you, God, open our eyes to the vision of who Christ is, that you would fill us with awe and wonder. It would draw us into worship in greater ways. God, it would help us to align ourselves with who you really are and what your purpose for us is, what your will is for us, God, that we wouldn't be distracted with what's going on in the world, but we'd be wholly in, we'd be all in for the kingdom of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, may we be a people who say yes and amen to everything you desire for us. In all God's people said, amen and amen. So in this description of Christ, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I don't know if you ever, like, wonder what Jesus looks like or have, like, thought about what, what it would be like to be in heaven and see God. You think of the song, I Can Only Imagine, right? Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel, right? Yeah, like, you ever go to that place and just imagine for a moment the glory that is in heaven? And here John is peeling back that veil and giving us a glimpse of the glory of God. And so I have another picture on the screen. I talked to a couple people last week. They said I didn't have enough pictures last week, so we got pictures today. So I got another picture of what John is describing. This is an artist's rendering of 
the image that he saw in his vision. With hair white like snow, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze, a long white robe with a golden sash. This is what it could have been similar to what John saw. And if you notice what Isaiah wrote about the Messiah and what John wrote about the Messiah are two different things. So what does that tell you right off the bat? It tells you John has a reason. He has something he's intending for us to understand in this vision. That, that it's not like we know of Jesus. There's something else being communicated right here in this description. And it is being communicated right before he opens up the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation that begin in chapter 2. So there is something that God, through Christ, to John, is setting up for the believers in Christ to get. There's, there's a purpose in this. He wants you to know and not miss so that you understand the theme, the tone, the purpose of everything else that comes next. This is so key. So beginning in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 1, we're just going to look at, at the first part at the beginning here, but we read actually in verse 7 two allusions to two different passages of the Old Testament in verse 7. Remember, as John's writing, he doesn't quote the Old Testament, but he alludes to it. He wants you to go back and discover what he's referring to so you get the meaning of what's being said. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it starts off like this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Somebody say the clouds. So behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, this statement may sound familiar. Have you heard that before? If you didn't, it was on the video that set up the series. So this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they had him on trial before his crucifixion. This is the thing he said that got them so angry that wanted them to put him to death. That, that made them say, okay, enough is enough. He's a blasphemer. He's got to die. This very statement made them say that. And the question is, is why would this do that? What was the big deal? That this phrase would cause them to be so angry that they wanted to put Jesus to death. It's because this phrase is associated with another term Jesus often used frequently for himself. There was a, there was a label that Jesus gave himself that would, he would quote often in the New Testament, and that was the son of, what is it? The son of man. Jesus never referred to himself as the son of God, but he referred to himself as the son of man. And there's a reason for that. That phrase, son of man, comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we read part of this. Is Daniel has a vision of heaven, the heavens part, and Daniel sees into the very throne room of God, sees God seated on the throne, and he sees other thrones surrounding Daniel and angels sitting on the throne. He refers to the, the Father as the Ancient of Days. And that the Ancient of Days and the heavenly court are gathered to pronounce judgment on Babylon and these, these other nations that are involved in this, in this vision. So as we see the Ancient of Days on his throne, the court is in session, about to pronounce judgment, we get to also be introduced to another character in the vision beginning in Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel 7, 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the, what? With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days. So here we have two characters. We have the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. They're not the same person. But he's coming with the clouds of heaven. And the Son of Man was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So here Daniel's referring to the Son of Man. It's the first time we get a glimpse of the Son of Man. This is who Jesus said he was time and time again while he was ministering on the earth. We have God on his throne before the heavenly court, and the Son of Man is presented before the Lord. And in this very moment, the human one, the Son of Man, is given all power and authority over the earth over every nation, tribe, and tongue. And it's in the scene as the heavenly court of God is about to pronounce judgment on the nations. So this is known by scholars also as the coronation of the Messiah or the Messiah ben David. The Messiah was called the root of David or the son of David. And this was the coronation of the Messiah. This is the moment the Messiah is crowned in glory. Crowned in heaven. And the question I have is, when does this occur? When you read in the opening chapter of Revelation, Jesus tells John to write about things that were, that are, and that will be. Things that are soon to come. So when did this moment in Daniel happen? When was the Messiah crowned in heaven as in given all authority in heaven and on earth. It happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After Jesus died and rose again, he ascended into heaven. Paul in Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 11, he writes this familiar passage of scripture. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is Messiah ben Joseph. Verse 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. The moment Jesus ascends into heaven and is presented as the risen Christ before the Father, he is crowned in glory and given all power and authority. How do we know? Because he tells us in Matthew 28, 18, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This moment in Daniel 7 happens as Jesus is glorified in his resurrection. And what happens? He's given a name that's above every other name. That every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is God. That he is Lord. Because of his willing death on the, Christ, Christ, the cross, Christ is exalted. And he's alive forevermore. And it's at this moment in the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, he's given an everlasting kingdom over every nation and tribe. It reminds me of Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government 
shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This passage is the foundation of many famous Christmas songs, with the Handel's Messiah is one of them, and the chorus in that song is, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. This is the God-man. The child that is born shall be called Mighty God. In this revelation, as Daniel refers to him as the Son of Man, he is known to be the one who comes on the clouds. He's presented before the Father as the one coming on the clouds. That phrase, coming on the clouds, is a unique phrase. Just like we saw in week one, that John used a, a label for God, a label for the Father, the same way that the pagans used for Zeus, the God who was, is, and yet to come. That was actually popularized for a false god, the god Zeus. The same is true with the phrase coming on the clouds. That phrase is not used prominently of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, it's only used of God a handful of times in the scripture, but that is well known in the ancient culture as a phrase that refers to a deity. That if you're referred to as one coming on the clouds, that refers to someone who is a deity or of divine origin. The cloud writers referred to the gods. And, and so here it's used of being pointing to the Son of Man, pointing to divinity within this being. So now you can understand why the Pharisees were so freaked out. When Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power, what he's saying is, yes. And you know what, y'all? I'm God, and one day I'm coming back, and you'll recognize that. One day, you'll recognize who is before you. That's why they were so upset and accused them of blasphemy. So Daniel uses this phrase, coming on the clouds for the Son of Man, but it's also used for another more prominent God in the ancient world. It was used for a God at the time of Christ in the, in the Middle East. It was actually used for the arch rival of Yahweh in Israel. It was used for the god Baal. Baal, in the worship of Baal, was the arch rival of Yahweh in the nation of Israel. You can read all through the Old Testament. Over and again, Israelites were falling away from the worship of God to worship the god Baal. Matter of fact, Elijah calls fire down on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. This was a big deal. But Baal was known as the one who rides on the clouds. He was known as the storm god. In antiquity, there were many storm gods similar to Baal, which has led the scholars to, to look at the similarities between the stories and the origins, and they've come to the conclusion that many of these storm gods are actually one and the same. They just go by different names. If you think of the Tower of Babel, what happened at Babel? God separated the languages. So at one time, the people were of one language. They knew the stories. They knew uh, what had happened before the flood. But in one moment, all of those stories got new names, new characters, because the languages were separated. And so the scholars believe that these characters, these storm gods, are really actually the same god, just used by different names in different nations and different cultures. And Baal was the arch rival to Yahweh in the nation of Israel. So people carried on these stories. Now, there were other popular storm gods at the time of Christ. We saw one in week one. We saw Zeus. 
Zeus was a storm god. We have Baal, that's a storm god. And we have one that's actually popular in our day today. We got a picture of this one. Thor. Right? We got a new Thor movie out right now. Where Thor is also the storm god of the Norse people. The son of Odin. He's the storm god. The champion of the Vikings. But he's equated with Zeus. And he's also equated with Baal. Yet we celebrate him as a good guy. He's one of our heroes. We wear him on our t-shirts, and, and we, uh, we love to you know, talk about the mighty Thor. But again, what Scripture reveals to us is that this is all one and the same. This is all interconnected. And we saw in week one that Zeus is really another moniker for the main rival against God himself, the enemy we call Satan. And in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 2, this is what Paul writes about the enemy he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. That word air can also be translated as the atmosphere. What's the power in the atmosphere? Storms. The enemy is the storm God. Baal, Zeus, Thor, are all one in the same. He's the prince and power of the air. And he was known in his time as the one who would ride on the clouds. But yet, we see here in Daniel chapter 7, as this court is in session, God and the heavenly courts about to pronounce judgment on Babylon, on the nations, we see the Son of Man rise up and give an authority over all the nations over heaven and earth, the authority to rule. And what's being depicted for us? It's being depicted that Satan's rule has come to an end, and there's a new cloud rider on the scene. There's a new cloud rider, the Son of Man, who has power over all authority in heaven and earth, not just the atmosphere, but in all heaven and earth. And he's dethroning Satan in this moment and assuming all authority in the earth. The rest of uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 continues with this theme as he is describing the Son of Man and his coming. In Revelation 1 7, it says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So Daniel 7 is talking about the coronation of the resurrection of Christ becoming the Messiah, becoming Messiah ben David, the conquering king. He's dethroning the devil. He's overturned the power, broken the power of the devil. But John continues in Revelation to say, yeah, and that same son of man, he's coming again. He will be coming on the clouds. And when he does, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This is right out of Zechariah chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. We're going to read that, Zechariah 12, verse 8. It says, On the day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like who? Shall be like God. The Messiah is the son of David. So this is the day the son of David is going to be like God like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. It's judgment. 
I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, somebody say pierced, when they look on me who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who mourns for a firstborn. So John is pulling from Zechariah this description of the returning of the Messiah, Messiah ben David, the son of man, and he's connecting the two images together. The son of man, the one who would come, and the one who's been pierced, the son or Messiah ben Joseph. He's marrying these two together, these images together, so you know who it is that we're talking about. It's not two different messiahs. It's one messiah. It's not two different people, two different personalities. It's one together. And he's linking this to the nation of Israel, the restoration of the coming of the Messiah. And he's telling them, salvation is coming. There is a day where your salvation is coming. Every promise God has given you, it's going to come to pass. It's on its way with the Messiah. He's bringing fulfillment in its wings. But when he comes, you're going to realize what you have done. When you look at the one whom you pierced, you will mourn. Why? Because you rejected him when he was here the first time. You rejected him. You overlooked him. You ignored him. Matter of fact, you had him killed. And on the day that's supposed to be a day of celebration, when you're rejoicing that the son of David has come, you're going to see, oh, no. We could have had this all along if we had just received him when he came the first time. Salvation could have been yours, but since you rejected him, you've been without him. But praise God, the rejection of the Jews opened the door to the Gentiles. And now all of us can be saved, amen? That because they rejected him, God opened the door of salvation to all of us. But this message isn't just for the Jews, because who is this message written to? It's written to the church. It's a message for the whole world because it's all of the world's sin that put Christ on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's not Israel's fault that he died. It's all of our fault that he died. And so here in this message from Zechariah that John's reiterating here in Revelation chapter 1, it's a message for all of us to step back and see who he really is and why he's coming. What's interesting is that not only is John describing him as the son of man that's in Daniel 7, but he also connects him to another figure in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. And it's interesting because of the next description John gives us in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 1. We read this last week. It says, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, his clothing was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. I mean, last week we really talked about the imagery of the lampstand and what that signified and the message for the church in this day and age. But what the angel is revealing to John is that 
we go back and look in Zechariah chapter 4, is that there was another angel before the lampstands in that vision, and it was the angel of the Lord. We get his identity in Zechariah chapter 1. The angel of Yahweh stood before the lampstand in Zechariah's vision. But here in Revelation, in the midst of the lampstand or before the candlesticks is not the angel of the Lord. It's who? It's Jesus. It's the Son of Man. It's the Christ figure from Daniel chapter 7 who is standing in the place of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament in Zechariah's vision. And that's interesting, isn't it? That you have a different figure in front of the lampstand. And John continues to describe what Jesus looks like by depicting this long linen robe which mirrors the angel in Zechariah chapter 4. But then he gives him another description, a golden belt that doesn't come from Zechariah. It comes from one of Daniel's later visions in Daniel chapter 10, also of the angel of the Lord. It's in Daniel's vision of the last days, the end of time, beginning in Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. Here's what Daniel writes. He says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz and around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were like flaming torches. Does that sound familiar? His arms and legs were like gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. Does that sound familiar? And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. Have you ever had an encounter with the Lord where, like, all your strength goes and you just fall down? Here's what he's experiencing. He's having an encounter with his presence. Verse 9, he says, so I heard the sound of the words, and I heard the sound of his words. I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and behold, a hand touched me and set me, trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before the Lord your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Isn't it a comfort to know that the first time you pray to God, he hears your prayers? The answer might be afar off, but the first time you pray, he hears. Verse 13, he says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So Daniel's revealing this vision that he has of this angel, and this angel reveals that he's been trying to get to Daniel to give him this message, but there were other spiritual forces preventing him from coming and giving him this message. The spirit princes of Persia were standing against him. And later you'll read about the spirit princes of Greece and other national entities, national spiritual forces coming against this angel that is trying to do, uh, give this message to Daniel. But this angel, the one with the golden sash, the one dressed in linen, is described a lot like Jesus in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Almost perfectly described like Jesus. Not only is this the same angel that we read in Zechariah 4, but this angel is given authority, seems to have authority over all the other hosts of heaven, including Michael, one of 
God's archangels. And so what scholars agree here in this passage that we're reading in Daniel and what's depicted here is that this is the angel of the Lord who also goes by another name in Scripture. We can read in Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. This is talking about the Antichrist figure who would arise in the last days. We'll get into more of that later in the book. But he's referred to as the little horn. And this little horn in Daniel 8, 11 is said to gain power. Verse 11, it says, he became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Somebody say the prince of the host. So in the Old Testament, the word prince can also be used for supernatural entity. So now we have this Antichrist figure that has become great as the prince of the host. That title, prince of the host, is also used in another passage of scripture, but it's worded or translated a little differently. It comes out of Joshua chapter 5, 13 and 14. This is right before Joshua leads the nation of Israel into the promised land to begin the conquest. Before they begin the battles that lead them into the promised land, Joshua has an encounter with a spiritual entity. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I've come, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? I love how Joshua asks him, Are you for us or are you against us? And the angel says, No. I'm not for you or against you. But my sword's drawn. Why? Because I want to know if you are for me. Are you for me? Because I'm for whoever is for me. Now that label, that title, commander of the army of the Lord, is the same wording in the Hebrew as the prince of the host. So who is this before Daniel? This figure of a man with the drawn sword. It is the Lord of heaven's armies. It is the angel of the Lord. He's the one dressed in linen with a golden sash or golden belt around his waist. It is the commander of the armies of heaven. It's not Michael, one of the archangels. He's above Michael. It's not Gabriel, one of the messenger angels. He's above Gabriel. He is the angel of the Lord. And now in the book of Revelation, the angel of the Lord is being connected to the Son of Man by nature of John describing them in the same way, in the same position before the lampstand, before the throne of God. So what is John telling us as we're piecing these pieces together and seeing what he's revealing? What is John telling us? He's telling us, number one, the angel of the Lord of God is Jesus pre-incarnate. The word incarnate is just a fancy word that means come in the flesh. The angel of the Lord is how Jesus appeared to people before the very first Christmas Sunday or Saturday or Friday or whatever day it is. Before the first Christmas day, Jesus was the angel in the Lord. You can see him appear to Abraham as Abraham speaks with a man and two companions before Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. He appears as the angel 
of the Lord. And this is the commander of the armies of heaven. He's a warrior. One of my favorite stories is in Isaiah 37 when Hezekiah is praying to God to be delivered from the Assyrians. And the angel of the Lord comes and slays 187,000 soldiers overnight and drives the Assyrians away. The angel of the Lord is a bad mamma jamma. He's bad. You don't want to go toe-to-toe with the angel of the Lord. You lose that fight every time. Every time. So the angel of the Lord is Jesus pre-incarnate. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is Jesus incarnate. It's Jesus after he was born, post-Christmas. God in flesh. As John writes in his gospel in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, same in the beginning with God, and the Word became what? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The miracle of Christmas, the coming of Jesus, was the angel of the Lord in all of his might, power, and authority forsook that to come into the form of a servant. But because of his willing death on the cross, he has been elevated now to a name that's above every name, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this understanding is important. Because we need to know who Jesus is. He's not just an exalted man. And he's not just one of God's angels. He is the angel of the presence. He is divine. He is God almighty. And this is important because the very definition of a cult is what you believe about Jesus Christ. If you don't know who he is, if you don't know what scripture teaches about who he is, you can be deceived. And Jesus said in the last days, there will be false messiahs and false Christs. Paul tells us about in the last days, people will be deceived by the doctrines of devils. And there, there's a, a group that claims to be uh, a Christian denomination, the Jehovah's Witnesses today. They teach that Jesus and Michael are one and the same. You can go right onto their website, jws.org or jw.org, and you can read their articles about Jesus being Michael. And I'm sorry, Jesus is not Michael. Jesus is above Michael. He's the angel of the Lord. He is Messiah ben Joseph in his sacrifice, but he's Messiah ben David in his second coming. He is the commander of the heavenly hosts, the Son of Man. And he's coming on the clouds of great power to set up his kingdom. Now, John makes allusions to more of his deity. We're not really going to pull into these, but they're found in Ezekiel and other passages in Daniel and in the Old Testament. But he makes allusions to his hair being white as wool, his voice like many thunders, his feet like polished bronze. That are depictions of the Father when the Father is revealed on his throne. And he uses those depictions for Christ himself. Why? Because he's the visible image of the invisible God. And John is trying to nail down in this opening chapter of the book of Revelation. He's tying all of these pieces together so that we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt who Jesus is, what is his purpose, and most importantly, I want to look at the last description that he gives of him today in Revelation 1.16 because this applies to the message he's about to give to the churches in the next chapter. In Revelation 1.16, it says, In his right hand he held the seven stars, 
and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Someone say two-edged sword. A sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. We're not going to go there, but in the book of Judges, chapter 5, verse 31, it refers to a warrior whose face shines like the sun, and those who love him shine like the sun. And earlier in the chapter, it talks about the stars of heaven arrayed for battle as they come together to give victory to Deborah and Barak against the forces of Sisera. It's depicting spiritual warfare and how what happens in the spiritual realm affects what happens in the physical realm. And so the face shining like the sun refers to battle, both spiritually and physically. But more importantly, this imagery of the sharp two-edged sword comes from his mouth. The sharp two-edged sword is important imagery. Isaiah 11:4, the prophet Isaiah writes this, With righteousness he shall judge the poor, to decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's not worded rod of its mouth, it's worded the word of his mouth. In Isaiah 49, 2, it says, He made my mouth like a what? Like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver he hid me away. This is speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the coming one who would rescue and redeem his people, restore the kingdom of God. God is making him to be like a weapon reserved for the day of battle. In all of these descriptions we have of Christ, in all of this imagery of Christ in this first chapter, it speaks of one thing and one thing alone. It speaks of judgment. It speaks of war. We have the Son of Man glorified and given all authority. Authority to do what? To bring judgment on the earth. We have the angel of the Lord. What was the angel of the Lord sent out to do? He was sent out to fight the battles of the Lord as the commander of the armies of heaven. And here specifically we see the sword of his mouth. And that will resurface again later in the book when we see him coming on the white horse. The, he is coming with the sword of his mouth. This is the image of Christ that we get from the very beginning of this book. This glorious appearing is one of judgment and war the one who is in the midst of the lampstands. Beloved, he is not appearing as a comforter or a shepherd or what we think about him today. He's coming as a warrior. He's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. And he's coming. And he's presented this way, not to the world. Who's the letter written to? To the church. Even before he brings judgment to the world. Now think for a minute. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he present himself this way to the churches? And more importantly, to the church in this end time revelation. Scholar Beale, in his book on the book of Revelation, he says it this way. He says, the Christians in Asia, the seven churches in Asia that this book is written to, he says, they are to understand that Jesus will do battle in this manner, not only against evil nations, 
but also against all those among the churches who compromise their faith. Now this echoes what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, he says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 17, for it is time for what? For judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We discovered last week that there is not only an incredible honor for belonging to the church of Jesus Christ, being part of the family of God, but there's also an incredible and great responsibility for being a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the last days, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate true and authentic believers from those who are just playing church and pretending to play the game. And we can see this even in the letters of the seven churches we'll begin looking at next week as he rebukes the wicked and he encourages the righteous. He begins to make a distinction between who really is and who really isn't. He praises the faithful, but he rebukes the unfaithful, calling them to repentance. Why? Because when the time comes, when he's bringing judgment on the clouds with great power and glory, it will be too late because you have already made your choice. You have already made it. You will have chosen who you're going to serve and where your loyalty lies. And as I'm studying this, I'm pulling this information out. I'm asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to say? What's your word for us as we're looking at this picture of Christ coming in glory, but coming with judgment in his fist? As we're seeing you as the judge of the world. What's your word for us today? And I heard the Lord say, very simply, your takeaway is the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. Well, what's the fear of the Lord? Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 8, 13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 23, 17 says, let not your heart envy sinners. Don't be jealous of evil people. Don't be envious of sinners. Don't Desire the things of the world, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Regarding wisdom, he says in Proverbs 2, 4, and 6, if you seek wisdom like silver, search for it as hidden treasures, you'll understand what? The fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives him wisdom, and from his mouth come what? Knowledge and understanding. What was the sword? It was a two-edged sword. There's two sides of what he's bringing. God's bringing knowledge. What? He's bringing knowledge of the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And when he comes with the sword, one side is truth. The other side is going to be understanding. What are you going to understand? You're going to understand what it means to reject the truth in judgment. Knowledge and understanding. Solomon says, seek wisdom like silver. Search for it like hidden treasure. For then you'll understand the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? What is it that, that, that causes us to, to 
dig into this. Does God want us to be afraid of him? Does God want us to be afraid like if we make a mistake, he's just going to hit the button and lightning's going to fly down and, and zap us? No. The fear of the Lord isn't being afraid of God. The fear of the Lord means to have great reverence for God. Great reverence, great respect to not take him for granted, to not take his love for granted, to not take his grace for granted. To worship him and him alone, no other gods before him. To trust him, to obey the word of the Lord out of reverence and honor. So the fear of the Lord, it's a healthy fear. You know, as parents, when you have small kids, if you were to walk into a room and you would see your child about to put a fork in a light socket, what are you going to do? You're going to walk up and bam, I mean, scoop them up. Whatever you're going to do, it's going to be dramatic enough to put a healthy fear in them because the alternative is worse. And by giving them that respect, they can then use that in a healthy way to benefit their life. God wants us to have the fear of the Lord, reverence. Why? To turn our hearts away from evil and to open the door of blessing to our lives. And what we've gotten to in the book of Revelation, this last day's letter, is that God wants the church to have a healthy fear to bring us back into the life, the calling, the purpose that he's given us before the foundation of the world, to be doing the things he created for us before the foundation of the world so we don't get sidetracked, we don't get off course. God doesn't want us to be afraid of him, but he does want us to revere him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, he says, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's only one that deserves your honor and respect. It's the Lord of all creation. Respect, revere, keep him in highest regard. The one who's Lord of all. Beloved, when you think of Jesus, don't just think of him as the one that forgives you of every mistake. Is he? Yeah. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But don't just think of him as the one that forgives you every time you make a mistake. Why? Because you'll take that grace for granted. You'll take it for granted. Think of him as the one who gives you grace, but is also the one coming to judge. Because to the one who much is given, much is required, and judgment will first come into the house of God. He's coming to prune the vine. He's coming to pour out his wrath on wickedness and rule the nations with a rod of iron. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says to the church, don't let us sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Not distracted, not overwhelmed, not overcome with the things of the world. What's he saying? He's saying, beloved, no more playing games. No more Christmas and Easter Christians remembering that the day is at hand. The time for his return is soon. It's not time to take him or his love or grace for granted or get enticed by the world. It's time to repent, recommit, respond to what the Spirit is speaking to the churches. To pursue the kingdom of God above all else and his righteousness. And watch God supply all of your need. Now is the time to wake up because we live in a day, and I believe we are living in an ever-creasing hour where people are walking away from their faith to their detriment and their ultimate damnation. This is not a willy-nilly thing. This is life or death. 
There are people excusing things and calling things like acceptable in this day and age. And Jesus says, I have not changed. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm coming with a sword. He grieves over those who walk away from the faith. Solomon in Proverbs 1 talks about those who will be destroyed by foolishness, who will be destroyed by their foolish attitude, their foolish hearts. Why? Verse 29, he says, because they hated knowledge and they didn't choose the fear of the Lord. It didn't matter. In one ear, out the other. They acknowledged him with their lips, but their heart was so far from them. They hated knowledge. Their loyalty was divided. And just like Jesus said, they couldn't serve two masters. And so what did they do? They gave up the only one that mattered. And one day, it's all that's going to matter. It's all that's going to matter. As we look at the churches of the Revelation next week, my prayers is that right now we would begin to examine our hearts, examine our commitment to the Lord, examine whether or not we fear Him, whether our hearts are really burning for Him and really connected to fulfill His calling for our lives, to really step out and be light and darkness, to do this thing. I'm so convicted over the stories I hear about what Christians are going through overseas and thinking, man, if that came to America, we'd be done. We are so weak. The excuses we make for why we can't just do simple things while people are being tortured and killed and raped and murdered for their faith. Who just want to live one day where they're not in threat for their lives and we just make excuses for so petty things. Where is our hearts? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we begin a time of response. I just want to leave you with this image. I'm going to read the description of Christ one more time. And I want you to picture this in your mind as if you were standing before him. And my prayer for you is that you as you image Christ, as you visualize Christ coming in his glory, that your heart would be filled with awe and wonder, but also great reverence for the mighty God. Lord, reveal your son to us right now. So then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice roared like many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two, sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last. 
the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And God, we say yes and amen. All praise and glory to the King of kings, the one who was and is and is to come, the Son of Man, the angel of the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. God, we worship you in all splendor and glory. God, we give you our hearts and lives, and we praise your name. We praise you. Yes. Hallelujah. Come quickly. Lord Jesus, let's all stand to our feet. If the Lord is speaking to you and you want to come and lay yourself down at the altar before him, come. And our prayer team will be down front. We'll have some members coming to pray with you. We believe that God is still a God who heals, that God has power over heaven and earth. If there's something in your life that you need a healing, we'll pray for healing. If you need a word of encouragement, we'll pray and ask the Lord what you're speaking today. But come as you respond to what the Lord is saying. If you need to renew your relationship with God, if you know you're the one playing games, you know you're the one on the fence, you know you're the one who's been taking his grace and his love for granted, it's not a shameful thing because this is the house of God. He will forgive you and cleanse you as far as the east is from the west. He'll restore you. He'll put a robe on your back, a ring on your finger, and say, my child who was lost is now come back again. He'll throw a party in heaven and say, come on, let's go for it. Let's do this. If you've been wandering from God, now's the time. Come and give your life back to the Lord. And as we sing, as we pray, from all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.